If you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll be finishing that chapter today. And uh, next week we'll move our way into chapter 8. But as it is, we'll uh, finish today. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We want to go back. We, we Last week, it's kind of a two-part sermon. And it... Um, where we began in verse 8, and we covered verses 8, 9, and 10. And we will want to go back and read 8, 9, and 10, and then we'll just finish out the chapter. So let's begin at verse 8, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you fell to godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. That's where we finished last week. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So in the reading of God's word, um, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Um, today we want to finish up chapter 7. Uh, it is a section that began in chapter 7, verse 2. And it's the third sermon out of this section. So you could really say it's one long sermon that I have mercifully broken up into three sermons for you. Uh, in the first section, which was verses 2 to 7, we saw how Paul appealed to the Corinthians to make room uh, for him in his heart. He had, start, he had started that church several years earlier. He had labored for it. He contended for it. He had suffered for that church. And he had them in his heart. And all he wanted them was to reciprocate from them, was to reciprocate that same love. And Paul was so greatly encouraged when he came to find out that they had responded positively to the letter and had repented of the issue. It gave him great reason, great cause to rejoice. Last week, we covered verses 8 to 10, and we made two observations there. First, we saw the difficulty Paul uh, faced as he wrote the severe letter and his trepidation about how the church there in Corinth would receive it. He sent the letter, and he regretted it in a way because he knew it would be hard for them to read, hard for them to swallow what he had said, yet he also did not regret it because he knew that the church had to be confronted with their sins in order to repent and experience restoration. And then we saw how Paul illustrated the difference between two kinds of repentance. Uh, there's the, uh, one that is, a, that is a, or uh, two kinds of grief uh, from being confronted with your sins. One is a, is, a, is a worldly grief that leads to death. And then on the other hand, um, there is a godly grief that happens to the people of God that leads to repentance 
which leads to salvation without regret. And that's where we ended last week. And it leads us to our sermon today. And the third observation that we make is the result of repentance. That's what you see here in verse 11. The result of, of, of repentance. Let's look one more time at it. Verse 11. For see what earnest this, earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear your names. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What punishment. Now I don't think that... Um, Paul was intending to write here about all the characteristics of godly repentance, not necessarily. But when we look at how he describes the, the repentance of the Corinthian church, it has all, you, as you can see there, it has, it's very descriptive and accurate in terms of uh, the observation of what true repentance really is. And it's important because we want to be concerned. We want to be a people that's concerned with repentance. We want, to situ, we want situations to be made right and relationships to be made whole. And Paul's noting here seven things that were evident in the Corinthian church and they are evidences of the work of, of, the, of repentance uh, into life in every believer. And so it appears that the Corinthians had not fully understood the importance of the situation from Paul's perspective upon his visit with them. So he visits with them and there's this terrible incident that happens and, and they don't seem to grasp the gravity of that situation, and then Paul leaves. They don't leaves. They don't react with repentance. And Paul um, um, uh, and Paul was deeply concerned about that. And after the letter, they understood then that uh, and had sorrow unto repentance. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to consider their response and be sure to note these things as we grow in godliness. So um, we want you to be able to think about. Um, your growth and godliness and how you might use um, heartfelt repentance because heartfelt repentance is not just for someone who's never been a Christian in order for them to become a Christian. It's a life that we need to be living together, a life of repentance, of asking for forgiveness, not only from God, but from others and having things made right. So note these things in your mind. Become these things um, because that's important. So first of all, Paul speaks of the earnestness, this godly grief produced in the Corinthians. Earnestness. Rather than being indifferent, rather than neglecting the seriousness of the situation as revealed in the severe letter, the Corinthians are now spurred to action. They had been neglecting this. The grievous sin of the church member had gone undisciplined as though it hadn't happened, so it wasn't a big deal. Uh, the church hadn't seen their need to address this situation and resolve it, not only for the sake of their relationship with Paul, but for their, the sake of their relationship with God. But after Titus' visit and the reading of the severe letter, they're now in a hurry to repent. They're in a hurry to do that. And, and that's what happens amongst people who engage in true repentance. They are moved with a desire for restoration to happen as quickly as is possible, they are not concerned. They are not unconcerned with the matter any longer, um, uh, as their apathy is replaced now with a true concern to have things made right. In true repentance, you don't want to live any longer having the situation remain the same. You can't stand the thought of that. You feel like you have to move. Secondly, Paul notes what eagerness they have to clear themselves. 
what eagerness they have to clear themselves. That is to say, they're eager to go and apologize so that the reconciliation process can take place. They wanted to clear their names and acknowledge their sin and have Paul think better of them again. It was important. It became important for them. We don't want Paul to continue to think this way about us. They cared what he thought about them. And I want to tell you something. I know that you can't be a prisoner to what other people think about you. You just, you can't. Sometimes people are just not going to like you. Um, and that can drive you to do things, by the way, if you want to always please people. It can drive you to do things that are against your morals. In order to please them, you may compromise yourself. Nor are you charged with dwelling on how to make someone like you more. That is not what you're called to do. Uh, so I'm not telling you to be a people pleaser at all costs. But I can tell you that if you have wronged someone as a Christian, you ought to be eager to have your name cleared. And for those that have been wronged, um, um, to think better of you. And, and this is heightened when we're talking about repentance toward God as well. If you have something between you and God, some sin that you've not yet repented of, um, it's incumbent upon you to eagerly seek your name to be cleared with God. And you do that by going to him, by acknowledging that you have sinned against him, and then asking for forgiveness. You cannot continue to resist asking for forgiveness. It's unhealthy in your relationship with him. So be eager there. Uh, be eager to clear yourself, not only with people that you may have wronged or have wronged you, but also between you and God. Thirdly, Paul marks their indignation as proof of genuine repentance. They felt angry, angry at themselves for the way they had acted toward, towards Paul in the past. This is a clear characteristic of repentance that you see then the, the wickedness in your deeds and a holy indignation rises up in you to see it dealt with for your sake. You have a pain for your past sins that will drive you to do anything to make it right with God. Sometimes you may even want to exact vengeance on yourself, but that can never be. That can never be. You cannot suffer for your sins in the sense that such suffering would make you right before God. It's never going to, your suffering doesn't work that way. Your suffering doesn't make you right with God. It's prideful to think that such actions could cause God to be, you know, such actions for you to suffer and to punish yourself would, would bring you, you know, and, whoa, there we go. Would, <laughs> it's, it's wrong to think that such actions to punish yourself would make God appeased towards you, would bring appeasement. God is only appeased by the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, it is consistent to have some kind of outrage about your sin. As someone who is in the process of being converted, that's certainly true because you need to embrace your sins. I mean, I beg your pardon. You used to embrace your sins and love them, but that's replaced now with a righteous anger, even, even towards your own sin. Righteous anger towards your own sin. Fourthly, Paul notes fear there. Those in genuine repentance will experience some fear about their sins. The Corinthians may have feared God, they, or they may have feared Paul uh, because of the gravity of opposing the apostle of Jesus Christ and what that means for them before God. Either way, they have great fear about their sins and what it will lead them to. 
And any genuine repentance will be marked with fear. We recognize what God can do for us. If you haven't become a Christian, you can probably relate to the fear uh, of, of uh, the, the, the fear of the judgment of God upon your... Uh, wow, even as a Christian, having known and thinking back to when you weren't a Christian, that at some point, fear about the judgment of God would seize you. Um, uh, that's a good thing to feel. People will tell you all the time, oh, that's not a good thing to feel, the fear of God. Yes, yes it is. Fear of God's the beginning of wisdom. Uh, without it, you're not going to be saved because you'll never be motivated to seek out a savior. And fear is a great motivator. <laughs> It'll cause you to do things that you never could do before, you never would do before. It makes you want to preserve yourself, doesn't it? And fear of God should lead you to say, well, how can I be preserved? And the only way to be preserved is by faith in Jesus Christ. But here, um, fear is a tool for God to lead you to seek reconciliation through Jesus Christ. And, and, and then, so that's not only for the non-Christian who needs to be converted. That's for you too, dear Christian. What fear should there be in you? When you find yourself in unrepentant sin, God disciplines his children as, as a, any good father disciplines his children. And we should be fearful about such discipline just as we're fearful of, of, of our parents' discipline when we, were, when we were growing up. We knew they loved us, but we feared what would happen to us. Fifthly, Paul praises their longing. Uh, or their deep desire. They longed here either for the correction, either for the correction of their sinful behaviors, or they longed for the presence of Paul among them, or both. But they had a deep longing. They had a deep desire for their conflict to be resolved. Their, their sin bothered them. There is separation from God when you're in sin. We remember what Adam and Eve did, don't we? When they sinned. They went into the Garden of Eden. They hid somewhere. First game of hide and seek, I guess, wasn't it? <laughs> um, but they hid. Why? Because they knew they weren't right with God. Sinners want to, want to be as far away from God as is possible. And even as Christians, we want to hide from God for a while after, after sinning. But then there is this longing within us, this longing, this deep desire to be right with Him. And in true repentance, one longs to be with God, and if sin has separated you or, or from another person, you long, you ought to, as a Christian, you ought to long for that to be fixed so that you can be reunited with that person. See how we're kind of bleeding over into repentance towards God and reconciliation between man? It kind of, kind of bleeds into both those things. Sixthly, Paul lists um, their zeal as a characteristic of their repentance, their zeal. They had a great, great passion for uh, resolution in the matter. They zealously desired for the one that had sinned among them to be restored to fellowship through true and heartfelt repentance. And this zeal is the driver, by the way, for both reconciliation and evangelism. Do you long for those who have wronged you or someone um, that you loved in zealousness for them to return to Christ and to be forgiven? Will you do what you can to ensure that they are brought to true repentance? Or do you take joy in their failures and 
root for the worst things to happen, and that's wrong. It's sinful. You know, hell, hell isn't a place that you should wish on your worst enemy. With a great zeal, we must long for reconciliation with God for ourselves and others. And then finally, uh, in that list, Paul marvels at their longing for justice to be served. He says there, what punishment? <laughs> That's kind of, we just don't think that way nowadays, do we? But he longed for justice to be served. What arose in them was a godly desire to see sin punished where it is. And I want to say to you that there is this important balance to be achieved in a Christian with regard to his or her desire for mercy and his or her desire to see the justice of God roll down. It is good to desire to see sin punished. It is good. Justice is a good part of God's character and work. And I'll tell you today that when he makes all things right at the last day, the righteousness of him, the righteous judgment, the righteous justice, it, we will rejoice in, in his perfect justice. We want him to make things right. We long for him to make things right. And we want him to deal with unrepentant sinners. I'm telling you, people, people who don't believe in hell, I've said this before, people who don't believe in hell, who don't want the justice of God to rain down upon the unrepentant, has to be people that live in middle to upper class places where they shield themselves from all the awful things in the world. From the sex trafficking to the exploitation that you go over in, in other countries and other places and, and somebody will come in and burn your village down. I, it has to be. God will bring justice. And it's okay for you to say, God, will you bring justice upon sinners and upon those who are unrighteous and those who are unrepentant and those who will not follow you. And if you think I'm wrong on this, go read some of the Psalms. They are the imprecatory Psalms where they ask God to bring justice. What are we supposed, are we different? Are we different? Of course we're not. And only that, Paul sometimes prayed imprecatory prayers. Lord, may you remember them for what they did. However, so I said all that, and I will come and say this. It's also good though desire that the mercy the mercy that is strange the mercy that God has extended to you be given to those who are in unrepentant sin in the sense that God will draw them to himself for their good and for their salvation you know you know at any rate those are seven things that Paul lists that are characteristics of true repentance and let's desire these things to be made right in us now let's go to verse, at the end of verse 11 there. You see where he says at every point down at the bottom of that verse. At every point, because this that begins the new thought. At every point you have produced yourselves innocent, approved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. So Paul rejoices 
Oh, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but when Paul wrote, he didn't write verse. He didn't write, this is verse 13 and all that, just so you know. Uh, the verses, the, the numbers for the verses, that's, uh, that's um, not, uh, what would you say? that? That's not inerrant because man came up with that idea. And man did a great job, just not all the time. <laughs> this is one of those instances. So this probably should have been on the end of verse 12. But anyway, Paul rejoices and he finds great comfort at the response of the Corinthians to the severe letter and to Titus' visit. They showed themselves to be pure in every way in the matter, and Paul had gone through all of that anguish for them. He hadn't done all this for the man that offended him. He hadn't done all this for that. And to an even lesser degree, he'd not done it for himself, as though he needed that man to apologize for him, and you better hold him accountable because my feelings are hurt. That's not what Paul did that for. He didn't do any of that for that. Paul had been disturbed because of the apathetic response to what had happened, to the sinfulness of this man and what he had done. That was what troubled Paul. Paul had come for a visit. In case you're wondering there, maybe I'll just kind of give it to you here. Paul had come for a visit. This is before the severe letter, right? So he comes for a visit. He heard there were problems in the church, problems with sexual immorality and some different things. He, he, he came for a visit. He rebuked them for their sexual immorality. And then one of the men had stood in headstrong opposition to Paul while the Corinthian church just sat back and acted, acted as if nothing wrong had happened. It left Paul concerned for them spiritually. Who is it that's unrepentant? Here's this, this is why it's left him concerned. Because who is it that's unrepentant? Who is it that would reject the, the apostle sent by Jesus Christ? And the answer is this, the unregenerate. That's who would do that. But Paul doesn't believe they're unregenerate. He doesn't believe that about the Corinthian church. They're just acting like unrepentant sinners. And you know what? We do that sometimes. Sometimes we act like unrepentant sinners. And that was the reason for the severe letter that Paul followed up. Paul leaves and some more he thinks about this. And he can't go back and visit him because he can end badly again. So he sends the severe letter and he sends it with Titus. And so Paul wanted to bring that repentance out of them. And it was important to him that it happened at all costs. They had exercised church discipline. And as hard as that can be, it was for God's glory. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this much. But church discipline is an important mark of a true church. And it is largely neglected in the church today. Our attitudes towards church discipline really are unbiblical. And the modern church is not doing anything about it. And we're like the Corinthians were. We don't like conflict. I mean, it's natural, right? Who wants conflict? When someone is in public and unrepentant sin, it's the only choice. We have to exercise church discipline. So I want you to hear me really clearly as we finish this up. Now, this doesn't mean that every time there's an argument in the church, we're going to take somebody's name off the roll book. That's not what we're talking about here. What happened in Corinth was no small thing. The offending man was in blatant public sin and had rejected the apostle sent by Jesus Christ. What happens, though, if that's done in the church today? Not much. I remember not long ago, how a church in Kentucky had removed people from their roll books that hadn't been to church there in ages. 
and they had sent a, a, a kind letter telling them that they wanted to address their church membership books and that they had noticed that they hadn't been to church in a very long time and, and they asked feedback, you know, why haven't you been coming? And if I'm not mistaken, I think they sent another letter asking them to resolve the matter. And if you didn't respond and didn't show up to church and they didn't return, they removed their names from the church roll book. And then the church, somebody got offended about that. And it was in the newspapers, it was on the radio, and everybody made a big deal on it. They got lambasted on social media. What kind of church tells you that you can't be a member there any longer? Well, that's not a church that loves Jesus. That's what a church filled with hate. Actually, on the contrary, that's a church that loves Jesus very deeply. And they consider the great burden of being responsible as a church and as a pastor for the shepherding of the souls in that congregation. And I suspect that if we did the same thing here, because we haven't addressed such things like that and haven't gone that far, we would be the object of ridicule and we would be blamed for people's hurts feelings because people would have hurt feelings. And I'm not talking about removing the names of shut-ins who can't come to church and make it church. I'm talking about someone that is able and healthy and who hasn't come to church in a very long time. People would be upset about it. Or, this is, I think this is even more important because this is really where it's at. Or if someone, I want you to hear me here, or if someone that was a member was in blatant and public, unrepentant sin. And then we went to the Bible. As the Bible says to go to them in Matthew chapter 18, because that's what it says, and asked them to repent and begged with them to repent and pleaded with them to repent over a course of time, and they refused, if we were to remove their names from the roll book, we would be the bad guys in the community. I can tell you that. We would be unloving and ungracious and going against the words of Christ according to people out there. And you know, that's what people would say even though the exact opposite would be true. To deal with someone in such a way as to implore them to repentance, to seek a period of time for them to pray about it, to try to convince them, only to have them continue in sin, and then to remove them, only then after going through all these steps, then to remove them from the membership of the church and the benefits that go with that is in fact the most loving thing that you can do because it will surely draw the unrepentant Christian back to the fold eventually because Christ will not lose one, right? He will not lose one or it will reveal that that person was never truly a Christian. At any rate, Corinth's repentance and holding the man accountable was a source of joy and of comfort to Paul. And we should consider these things. And we should allow the Bible to govern what we do and not public opinion. And I can tell you that's very hard because I cringe at the thought of doing it. But who are we going to honor? God? Man? ourselves. We better honor the Lord, hadn't we? All right, finally, I'll do quickly here. Um, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything uh, we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. 
And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. And the final observation we have is to see that Paul had confidence in the repentance of Corinth because he was confident in God. That's what you are. You're not confident in people. Paul believed them to be a true church and he believed they would repent and do the right thing not because of them and because of their character but because he believed that they had been converted to Christ and God never lets his true people go Titus on the other hand had his doubts and misgivings about them and you could see why he loves Paul so much and he would have been dismayed at how they were treating him and, and, and all that goes along with that he didn't have the same expectation as Paul had but Paul was not disappointed Titus goes, he gives them a severe letter, they repented, they disciplined the, the man. And what's more is that Titus' role in this is very important. It's entirely possible that they responded even better to his presence than the severe letter that Paul wrote. And that shows you the value of God's true representatives. It's good to be a good representative of the church, isn't it? A good representative of, the, of Jesus Christ. And Titus himself was refreshed by his visit when he goes there. He was pleasantly surprised. He was uplifted and, and, and by their hospitality and by their wholehearted repentance. And not only that, but Corinth had even trembled and had fear over their weighty matters. It was a genuine sign of God's work in them. And Titus was refreshed by it. And there are some things we need to tremble in fear over with regard to the things of God. That's very important. And then the whole matter gave Paul complete confidence in their salvation. They were broken. They repented. They obeyed. They disciplined the wrongdoer. They sought reconciliation. Not everything's perfect with this church. There's still problems. They still had points they needed to work on. But on the big matter that would prove that they were either true believers or apostates, Paul was very pleased in their response. And so was Titus. So church, we close up today reflecting on the value true repentance true repentance it's not the right natural way for a Christian to live in unrepentant sin it's not it's not if you have unrepentant sin you need to confess it repent and go if there's something between you and God you need that taken care of if there's something between you and someone else I'm telling you today you need to take care of it. we do not want to be a church that holds grudges will not repent will not say will you forgive me will not seek others people to you know you to talk to other people and say you know you wronged me and I think we need to talk about this and make, have this made right we do not need to be a church like that so we close up reflecting on true repentance. It's not, it's not the right way. So we've seen the importance as a whole for a church to strive for corporate repentance, to be renewed to God, to be true to his doctrine. And folks, we've got to care enough about those that have professed Christ and have taken up membership in the church and have joined themselves to the work of God to go to them when they are either unrepentant or disfellowship and implore them to return. We must pray for them and we must hold each other accountable. It's a mark of a true and healthy church. <laughs> so these are hard things. I don't um, deny that. They're difficult. Um, but if God has asked them, us to do that, well, we studied in his providence today. He guides us, doesn't he? And he takes care of us. And he watches over us. And you know what? It's okay if the world doesn't like us so long as we know we're doing what God's called us to do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's sharp. It cuts us deeply, Lord. Cuts us going in, cuts us going out. Help us, O oh Lord, to honor you with our lives, to be repentant people, to seek repentance, God, to hate our sin, to want to be reconciled to you, God, and reconciled to others, Lord. 
It's not right when we're apart from you. It's not right when we're apart from others. So guide us in these things. Give us strength. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Here's what we're going to do. Here's all we're going to do. Please stand. All we're going to do, we're going to play one verse. And no singing. And all I want you to do is I want you to reflect on your life. And in two ways, vertically and horizontally, have you got something before God you need made right with him that you haven't confessed, that you haven't taken care of, that you're running from? Now's your opportunity right now with the word of the Lord fresh upon your mind to take care of that. And then secondly, what do you have horizontally? Is there someone that's wronged you or if you wronged someone else, what is it? Ask God to help you take care of that. We don't need to be a church. We don't need to be a church that holds grudges and won't talk to people. We need or doesn't confess to God what we've got going on. One verse, that's your opportunity to pray. Let's do that.